Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I am your host Scott Challoner today and I'm delighted to be joined first and foremost on the programme by Diane White. Diane is the CEO of the Kingston Carers Network, a registered charity which provides independent information, advice, advocacy and support to people who care for someone living in the Royal Borough of Kingston-upon-Thames. Uh, Diane, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thank you, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Diane. Um, the whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And considering that today's business leaders are going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say in the shape of the COVID-19 situation, I feel that's a good place to uh, to start. And it would also be remiss of me, in fact, not to ask you just to what extent it's affected you in your organisation, because I can imagine the challenges over the last few months have been tremendous for you. They have been tremendous. It's been a very, very different way of working. It's been a very, very um, large responsibility, I would say. Um, I sort of knew how my organisation worked. I knew what we were trying to do. And it was moving along in, in a reasonable and sensible way. And then this comes and everything has to completely change. Uh, we have to look at things completely differently, working in a different way. And our carers, are facing different challenges from the ones they were before. So we have to adapt what we're doing um, and I have to lead that. And having managed this period over the uh, the last uh, few months, is there anything that you would say in your leadership capacity that you've learned from having to adapt to this new reality? I think that is actually the uh, definition of leadership. It's um, so you sort of think everything is going along really well and everything is uh, working, you've got your systems in place, but it's the unexpected that comes along and that's where you've really got to step, step up. Um, you've got to really know uh, what you're doing, you've got to uh, keep doing your research, you have to learn from everybody around you, um, you have to listen to your carers in our case and find out what really is important now because before I thought I knew what was important um, but in different situations you have to address different challenges and I have learned that I have to, um, it's me um, in my leadership role that has to step up and make sure that our carers are being looked after and supported as much as possible. And it's really shown us, hasn't it, the value of hindsight, this uh, pandemic. Um, we've seen that it's a learning curve looking back um, and sort of thinking, well, this could have been done differently and that could have been done differently. But at the time where you've had to be reactive to changing guidelines and changing circumstances, that's the hindsight argument isn't really applicable, is it? It's just a case of accepting that maybe we're going to make one or two mistakes in our leadership roles dealing with such an unprecedented challenge. And we have to embrace that and not necessarily have a blame culture in place. Absolutely. And I'd also say with the benefit of hindsight, though, there were certain um, plans that we had or I had for the organisation moving us forward, particularly in a technology um, point of view. And um, we'd been looking at it, we'd been thinking about it, it was change. I wasn't sure that the organisation would really welcome it. But when this happened, we had to um, grasp it and get on with it. And it worked extremely well. 
so that is a lesson learned that don't be frightened of change if you think it's going to be um, for the benefit of the organisation then get on and do it and I've been incredibly proud of the staff and how they've managed um, to uh, take on new, new challenges changes to the working pattern changes to how we do things um, and actually there's been quite a bit that we've learned that we are going to keep that we are very grateful we've had to learn how to do or do in a different way introduce uh, whatever it is but there have been um, some positives that have come out from from a service delivery point of view mm. and it's testament to the efforts of leaders and staff as well during this time because a period such as this is also mentally taxing isn't it it's really highlighted the importance of mental health and well-being during this time particularly with the social isolation element of the uh, the lockdown the fact that there's all of the worry and uncertainty about people's health about the economy so that's something that's really been thrust back into the limelight of leadership isn't it the importance of mental health during this period it, it absolutely has and again it's something that you think that you're mindful of that you think that you're aware of but this period has really brought it so much uh, to the fore. So there's lots of different things that have brought into place, made sure that we do whatever we possibly can to reduce the isolation, that we did work completely from home, and how to keep that team spirit going, how to make everybody feel that they were still part of an organisation, that we were all working together towards the same aim, doing our very best for carers, what we all do. And it was incredibly important that we all felt we were part of this together. Um, I would have said that we did that before, but um, I think we ha- I had to step back and really look at how we might do that. Um, and then, of course, uh, from the point of view of our carers, it, as time went on, it, it became a little bit more difficult for them as well. You know, um, Their health uh, began to um, suffer as well. So we had to expand it from ourselves into very much and um having thought about sort of um how some features of the lockdown period as i say are going to be a permanent fixture of uh, the way that the organization works um, in future i suppose it's only right that we also talk about what's sort of inspired you through this time because i suppose as a ceo of the network a lot of people will have been looking to you for guidance and direction during a time such as this but when you're sort of at the top of the operation and leading everything where is it that you tend to look to when you need a little bit of inspiration and perhaps guidance for yourself um, I think that locally we have a good network um, of the chief um, executives in our voluntary sector. We have um, we support one another. Um, our local um, Kingston Voluntary Action is has been very strong, and with the council has very much uh, supported us. Um, I think a lot of it is about self care, though. You have to um, recognise yourself, your strengths, and need. Um, a little bit of extra support when you need some guidance and you work with others to try and, and try and move forward. I think it's understanding that you don't have to have all the answers yourself and you can go out and um, talk to everybody and find out um, what's working well for others. Again, it's hearing from um, your carers, um, in our case, uh, finding out what is really, really important, what are the priorities. And um, when you have your priorities, then it's uh, a way of working through to try and, and achieve them. It's what we do um, 
it, it's, it's been slightly different um, over the last few months, mm. but it is what we do. And just thinking about the role of a leader just in a much broader sense, what would you say a leader's role actually is? Of course, it's to step up during a time such as this, but in the day-to-day, if somebody mentions the word leader, what does that word actually mean to you? uh, In a positive sense, I think it means taking responsibility. I feel that you allow um, everybody else to have the freedom to do their role, to know what they're going to do, to have a clear direction um, in a supportive environment without the um, stress side of responsibility. Um, Because for some people, responsibility um, isn't a positive. It's something that inhibits their work. And it's my role to take that away from everybody so they can um, get on with what they do extremely well, knowing that um, I am there to support them, setting things in place, the whole environment is a, a supportive environment. So they can concentrate on themselves and what they need what they need to do. So it take away some of the difficulties and the challenges for others. And um, whilst having strategic overview to make sure that everything's working as well as it And I ask that question because it's important to remember, and again, we've been reminded of that during this time, that it's not just about leadership within any business or organisation. It's just as much about those people around you. And they have really, really stepped up during this period of time just to keep things ticking over. And a lot is certainly um, owed to them for their efforts. Absolutely. I can't thank the team enough for everything they've been doing. Um, As I say, they have absolutely embraced change. And it brings it back to um, we improve life outcomes for carers. That's what we do. And we thought we had a way of doing that. And over the last six months, we've had to really change um, how we do that and down to the practical side of delivering food parcels, which we do um, regularly. We do it slightly in a different way now, but that's still going on. Um, learning how to do things differently. Um, but everybody has been absolutely incredible at doing things in different ways. Um, but that comes from being clear as to what the guidance is, what they're able to do, what they should be doing. And that is my role to keep them all together as a team, to make them feel supported, to make sure they're not isolated, to make sure um, everybody's clear about what, what their role is. And having reflected on that, I think it only serves that we also talk about the future as well, Diane, just before we do wrap things up on the programme this morning. We know that over the course of this next year, we're going to have to continue to adjust to this new normal in the way that we live and the way that we work. Um, But where is it that you see the Kingston Carers Network being in 12 months time? And what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over the period? It's a a little bit difficult to say where do we think we will be in the sense of a um, practical side. But we still um, are going to be here. We're still going to be supporting um, carers. We're still going to be uh, working to improving life outcomes for carers in Kingston. Now, how that's going to look, whether or not we'll still be in an office, whether or not we'll be um, entirely um, out in the community rather than in a hospital, then I think we're still not sure about that. I think things change every day. We've got Um, Right now, we're talking at a a period when things are beginning to close down again. 
and some of the um, areas we've opened up, we are going to um, have to refuse. So it is a little bit difficult to say how and where we're going to be, but um, and, and certainly funding is going to be a massive issue over the next few months in this charitable sector. But I am absolutely determined and convinced that we will still be here doing our very best for Yes, it's certainly going to be an interesting uh, time. Um, there are huge question marks, as you say, over the uh, the future of the office, whether people will be working from home more on a personal basis, particularly as we um, approach the winter. And I certainly, over this uh, next few months, wish the Kingston Carers Network all the luck in the world with its endeavours, Diane. And I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the programme with us at some point in this next year, just to really see how things are coming along as well. Thank you very much. That would be absolutely wonderful. I'd love to do that. It would be a real pleasure for me to welcome you back on. I've really enjoyed having you on to discuss your views this morning. And most importantly, until we do hopefully touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet. Absolutely. Thank you very, very much. And I would reiterate that message to all of those tuning in today. Please do continue to be sensible and look after yourselves and others. It makes a huge, huge difference in saving lives. I was speaking on today's programme to Diane White, the CEO of Kingston Carers Network in Kingston-upon-Thames, London. Coming up next on the programme today, however, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. During his playing days, he became renowned and by joining an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia, as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an England captain in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew has become a champion for mental health causes and become director of cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board, a position which he retains to date. I hope that you all enjoy listening, just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with him. And that is, of course, coming up now. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year, so congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname, ah. it was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then 
Warnie got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um, source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the ashes was mm. back then you know we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible australian teams year after year so you know the, the closer we got to it the harder it became um i remember ashley giles walking into the dressing room for the f- i think it was in the final day of the series and i looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible like just white of a sheet gray 
He looked like he'd aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's, there's so, there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance, and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived Hold as a on. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably 
worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think they're they're all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so i definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 world cup i thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure um and i knew in order to do that we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on and yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, 
and we had to move it. In fact, we didn't have to move it at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift our both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off. And uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become... Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is, 
in some ways more pressing is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we're, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so it w w what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely yeah. you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. 
Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I I will I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gotta be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.